excuse me, I have a cough drop in my mouth, so you're going to hear everything, including that. Um, So tonight I want to talk with you about uh, wise concentration, or sama samadhi. Samadhi, or concentration, is the sixth of the seven factors of awakening, the seven wonders of our inner world that we are exploring together. And it's the one that really steadies the heart through all the ups and downs of life. And in some ways, samadhi is the jewel in the mandala of the Buddhist teachings. It works together with everything else as a foundation and support for all the forms of meditation that, uh, well, all the forms of meditation practice and certainly all the things that we're doing here together, the Brahma-vihara practices, the insight practices, and um, the deep states of absorption practices. And even though those aren't what we are mostly teaching here, all this training that everyone is doing in concentration, um, it really helps the mind lose its fascination with everything that isn't present in the moment. Uh, We sometimes call this papancha, that activity of branching, proliferating, associative um, thinking. So I'm going to talk about some different kinds of concentration tonight, and maybe in a slightly different way from what you would find in the books, because you can find that in the books. And then, uh, and I also am going to talk about how what we call the hindrances transform into different aspects of samadhi when we shine this light of focused awareness on them. So that concentration, I don't really love that word. I I like samadhi better. There's something kind of smoother about it. And it's a smooth state when we're in it. Um, So this samadhi practice is the beginning of the journey to actually change our experience of the hindrances, the hindrance factors um, in our consciousness, actually helping to not just temporarily suppress them, but to actually uproot these, well, uproot, that's a little ambitious, but at least loosen the roots of uh, greed, anger, and delusion. So, Sama Samadhi, this wise concentration, brings a refined capacity to look deeply beneath the surface of our usually conditioned approaches to things. It's so humbling when we start to see that, how conditioned our approaches to things often are. Uh, It helps us actually alter some of the habits of our mind and experience what's possible for our hearts and minds. And there can be actually quite startling degrees of joy and peace and happiness and equanimity that our hearts and minds can access and that really expand our vision and inspire us. Um, I want to tell a story. Some of you may have heard it, but it's from my very first Vipassana retreat, which was really, it was maybe the second retreat that Jack taught uh, in this country, and it was before they had Barry at IMS, and I had practiced Zen for a while. But my teacher, my Zen teacher, didn't emphasize samadhi so much. It wasn't so much what he was interested in. But I I, I was there with two of my dearest Dharma brothers, and I really followed the instructions because they were brand new to me, so I had that beginner's mind of, oh, okay, and I just did it. And there wasn't any doubt. Um, I just did it. And it was also, I think, a two-week retreat, and our Zen retreats were... Uh, either three days or seven days. So that was the longest I had sat at that point. And one night I was practicing walking meditation outside on this um, walkway. It was a, 
I think it was a boys' camp we, that had been rented for the retreat. And uh, my mind was very still and clear and concentrated that night. And so I was just walking back and forth the way you do. And when I get better, I will too with you. And I glanced at the Coke machine and a Coke came out. (laughs) Yeah. All I did was look at it. And you know, it tumbled down. And I didn't even want to touch that Coke. Um, Although today I was kind of longing for a Coke. Maybe it's because of this story. But anyway, that night I did not want to touch that Coke. I was really freaked out. And I went for my meeting, we called them interviews then, with Jack. And I was like, I am in a really weird state. This is a really weird state. I was afraid to even look at anything, you know. I was really keeping my eyes down. Um, And I was a little agitated in the meeting. And and I remember he said, well, you know, you're often in weird states of mind but they're just familiar to you. Like, think about being really furious with somebody. Plotting revenge. Think about, you know, he started listing all these states that they are weird, but we're used to them. So, anyway, that was the first experience of the power of concentration. <laughs> and and that is it's quite emblematic of the way my practice goes in terms of spiritual experiences. But... Um, Anyway, so, I mean, they're powerful, but kind of what for, do you know? Um, They raise that question. Um, The practice of concentration is to develop a sincere, uh, wholehearted presence with experience. The word that's often used is one-pointed, but I don't like that word. It's too pointy. And sincere actually means gathered into one point. Sincere means um, singleness. And it expresses, I think, that totality of presence. Uh, And whenever you meditate, you're gathering and collecting attentiveness and focus and cultivating the ability to stay with a subject of meditation, whatever that might be. And that's how we cultivate in meditation. We try to bring this into our life uh, as undistracted mind as possible, attending wholeheartedly to whatever is predominant in the moment. Um, At the time of the Buddha, the cultivation of these very deep states of absorption that we call jhana practices, these altered states, I think that was the... It just seems to have been the kind of practice that was most taught and that he really did full-on before the Bodhi tree. Uh, And afterwards, of course, he brought mindfulness into the picture, and we've been talking about our gratitude for that. Here's what the Buddha says about um, the unconcentrated, the un... well, the unconcentrated mind. He says... As a fish, when pulled out of water and cast on land, throbs and quivers, even so is this mind agitated. So it's like a fish, pull, you know, flopping around desperately on the ground. If you've ever seen that, it's not uh, peaceful. He goes on to say, Wonderful indeed it is to train the mind, so difficult to train, ever swift, and seizing whatever it desires. A tamed mind brings happiness. And then he goes on, a protected mind brings happiness. Those who train the mind are liberated and freed. So we've been teaching that what we dwell upon to that which we give attention, to that does the heart incline. And this is what shapes our world. Certainly our affective or our feeling world. my daughter was talking about a family member who um, 
wanted to see her and the kids more than she has time to be able to do with Little League and Girl Scouts and all the things they do. And, um, and she was saying about my mother, her Grammy, she said, Grammy was perfect. She was really happy to see us when we came and she never complained about the sometimes quite long intervals when uh, she didn't see us. She said, so I don't feel guilty now. My mom has passed away. So I don't feel guilty now at all about what I did or didn't do. What a gift to give somebody. And so we were emailing about, wouldn't it be great if we could all be like that with each other and not have to be having these feelings of more and regret and so forth. But my mother really focused on her happiness with what she had. And, uh, I mean, she certainly grieved the loss of my dad, but when she surfaced from that, she really focused on her happiness with what she had, contentment. Or in this case, we could say gratitude, being one of the proximate causes for... um, contentment for samadhi, for being able to gather uh, ourselves together and just dwell upon that which is actually here in our lives and let go of worrying and fretting over what's missing. And so the mind, when we're able to do that, it starts to lose some of its anxiety and it begins to change its relationship to craving and to the countless ways it finds to just stick well, to finds this world pretty sticky place. Um, so some of the different um, kinds of... Excuse me, I just feel like this got out of order, so I have to look at it. It did, and I don't... I do know what happened. It was... Um, I had a lot of worrying and fretting. My computer was kind of crashing and... So something that I changed got out of order. Um, Leela helps me because my mind doesn't like to put things in order. So she will read it and put it in order. Um, So let me just... Okay, I want to say this part first, really, because... Sorry, Leela. She tried. She tried. Um... Before going on to the different qualities of this samasamadhi, I mentioned that the hindrances can be transformed with it. And so I want to come back to that and name that, because I know once I go on, there won't be time to come back to it. So how the first hindrance of clinging, or what the Buddha called, I really liked this, um, the mind ever swift seizes whatever it desires, right? You know, you've, we've all experienced this. And so this is that, um, <coughs> excuse me, quality of clinging. Now, when we can bring um, our full presence to it, it's not a hindrance or a distraction anymore. It becomes the content of what's so, of the truth of that moment. And there's a kind of roominess, R-O-O-M, spaciousness that we create. And that's an act of generosity. Uh, Suzaki Roshi, who, somebody I sat with enough, um, I will say, had a chance to sit with enough. And very, very kind of strict, fierce teacher, But he said this wonderful thing once. He said, Zazen, meditation, is the activity of making room for another. And I really love that because to make room for another, we have to move out of the way, right? We just do. We have to at least move our stuff out of the way. And so this is how the clinging transforms into generosity through the spacious awareness um, of being present with experience. Then aversion, you know, with the simple, systematic application of the phrases. 
combined with our best effort to actually listen to them and maybe connect with the feeling, but at least we are connected to the intention of each phrase. And you've seen it, at least in a moment or two by now, and many of you really have tasted how the aversion can become a form of metta. And it's not that we suddenly love what we hated before, but the heart isn't dwelling in an aversive state, you know, and that is a huge metta experience to be freed from that particular kind of suffering. Then there is sloth and torpor, right? With wise concentration and the qualities of energy and effort that we were talking about on Sunday evening, patience, fearlessness, perseverance, passion, enthusiasm, determination, zeal, vigor, intensity, courageous, brave activity. So that sloth can really become vividness. And you've experienced this when you're sleeping. I mean, what could be more slothful than sleeping, right? So you're sleeping and your dreams are vivid. They're all more vivid. They may not be more pleasant, but they are more vivid. Like if you didn't remember your dreams before, now you are remembering them. This is something that um, is part of that vividness. Then there's restlessness, and I had a real attack of it this afternoon. I really am glad I couldn't get a Coke um, because I already had too much energy, and my brain was just locking into something outside of the retreat that completely distracted me from preparing this talk. So um, I just happened to be able to have a meeting with one of my colleagues, and it was like a meditation interview, a meditation meeting, you know, face-to-face, okay, what's going on? And, um, and I was very focused with him. I like to be with my colleagues. I like everybody on this team so much. And so it's easy to focus and be present when it's something pleasant to be with, or easier. It was very easy to be present in that situation. And it brought calm. And a bit of an outline, too. And the calm... Because, you know, when you're just full of ideas and they're pouring out of your mind, and it's... Anyway, this is a refuge in Sangha, in the shelter of each other, when we are, um, you know, kind of agitated or just overflowing with energy or locked on to something that's not so helpful. You can just open your eyes and look around at the retreat, this calming company as long as you don't fall prey to the last hindrance, which is doubt. If you start to doubt yourself, compare yourself to others, it's not so calming, is it? Um, But when we can survive being distracted by doubt, and it's so slippery, it's just you have to see it, and this is doubt, and recognize it, and then nothing is a distraction. Again, we just can bow to that experience, because the truth is present in each moment of reality, when we are focused and alert. And so this, um, this range of things that we do with all these distracted forces, you know, our insight practices, our Brahma-viharas, our, uh, all the kinds of samadhi that I'm about to talk about help us gather uh, the many beings together, the many beings who inhabit our hearts. The first line of the Bodhisattva vows in Zen is... Um, The many beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And just um, kind of borrowing on what Hillary, my daughter, was saying about my mother, I think we could say, the many beings are numberless. I vow to free them all, to free them from the burden of expectation and comparison and criticism and, and, and um, the many beings in our hearts would be a good place to start. So the first kind of samadhi is this quality of calm that I talked about last time and you're all coming to know this here, uh, this sort of, the profound loveliness of calming down and 
and just being more grateful, contented, at peace, um, concentrating to bring yourself to be deeply present, not concentrating, you know, to attain some special state or get somewhere else, but to be deeply present. This is from Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. There's something calming about cows. Where I left them asleep like cattle. Cattle are cows. (laughs) Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear leaves it. So this is that transformation that uh, we're talking about in that quality of calm. This one is by Denise Lovertoff. It's uh, another aspect of it. It's called Come Into Animal Presence. She says, Come into animal presence. No one is so guileless as the serpent, the llama intricately folding its hind legs to be seated, not disdains, but mildly disregards human approval. What joy when the insouciant, the carefree armadillo glances at us and doesn't quicken her trotting across the track into the palm brush. What is this joy that no animal falters but knows what to do? Those who were sacred have remained so. Holiness doesn't dissolve, it's a presence, this relaxed, confident kind of presence of the animals, you know, looking up at us and then just looking back down and going about their business completely unrocked by worries about being seen or judged or, you know, compared to other ones or um, maybe they should be going a little faster or slower or they're just so free, utterly free from the self-consciousness, the self-consciousness that separates us from experience. They're like that Kuan Yin on the back altar in her posture. It's called the posture of royal ease. So this is one kind of samadhi. Another kind is the lightness of being that many of you have glimpsed here. My beloved teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, with whom I practiced from the time I met her until she died, it was 11 years, she used to talk about, she'd give a little talk and she'd say something about your sparkling zazen. And I would think, um, sparkling? You know, is it, I mean, it's kind of hard work. I didn't experience it as sparkling. And one day I asked her, I mean, it didn't feel sodden or anything, but it really didn't sparkle. So I asked her once, like, sparkling zazen? She was so kind. She said, oh, it's just a figure of speech. (laughs) But some of you have begun to experience that sparkle, you know, and it's not just the sparkle of seeing light. Don't worry if you're not. I never did at that time. Uh, But it's the sparkle of just feeling more light and carefree. Um, Suzaki Roshi, again, he... He always set up the centers um, with a zendo where you practice your sitting meditation. And then there'd be a separate building, or at least a separate room, called the sutra hall, where you would go and do the chanting. And I remember, you know, I thought, well, is it, it, was, it was nice to be able to stretch your legs just to walk from the zendo to the sutra hall, because you'd be really in a lot of leg pain and... And then he explained once why we don't chant in the zendo, in the meditation hall. He said, because 
the zendo is a cesspool. So this is another kind of <laughs> samadhi. You know what he's talking about. It's when it's the opposite of sparkling, right? It's the place where we just, it's like we sweat it out, except it's not a sweat. It's like a mental sweat. You know, it's like it just exudes all our, the things we might call hindrances if we weren't so sparklingly aware of them. Um, And it's really great because sometimes the world can sparkle with some kind of lightness. And it's, um, it's really uplifting for us. This is from Rumi, R-U-M-I. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy. But let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you, the buoyancy. And buoyancy means that lightness, that like a buoy floats on the water, that lightness of being. Then there's the moment-to-moment samadhi. It's called kanika samadhi, but You don't even, what's the point of knowing that? It's just moment-to-moment presence with experience. Just this breath, just this sound. Moment, moment, moment. It's sometimes called active concentration too because it's dwelling on what's happening and unfolding in the present moment even as it changes. It's expressed in this verse. The spring wind blows through the live oak trees and the trees dance. When the wind stops, the trees are still. So taking a whole month to work with that singular intention of sincerity and focus, it takes resolve and a tremendous application of effort to keep beginning again but here you are. And you can experiment and see what effect this, you know, these different ways of being and ways of knowing experience, what effect they have on you. Because we're all so different. And uh, we do have such a diversity of approaches to knowing our experience. And uh, Lila and I were talking this afternoon. I think that Bonnie and she were talking about that what we're teaching here is a kind of epistemological diversity. It's not, concentration is not our main focus. It's a skillful means. It's an upaya. We're really talking about different ways of knowing experience. And I read a beautiful article which, uh, about neurodiversity. And it was, it's kind of radical because it's really talking about instead of focusing on various you know developmental disabilities and learning disabilities and you know if you become this sort of disability focused culture which is really the opposite of rejoicing in what's here and being contented with that isn't it and uh so he's saying the concept of neurodiversity provides a more balanced perspective instead of regarding traditionally pathologized populations as disabled or disordered, the emphasis is placed on differences. Dyslexics often have minds that visualize clearly in three dimensions. My mind won't do that, but I have a friend whose daughter can just look at somebody and take a piece of fabric and go wind it around, and suddenly it's a three-dimensional garment. Um... People with ADHD have a different, uh, maybe more panoramic attentional style. Autistic individuals are really, can be genius at relating to objects or numbers or animals much better than to people. And I think one important ingredient in the alleviation of suffering, and remember all of this, always, is for the alleviation of suffering. Everything we're doing here, this 
place is, you know, a tribute to that beautiful intention. So one important ingredient is to emphasize the positive dimensions of people who may have been traditionally uh, stigmatized as less than normal. And we can apply this to ourselves here because we stigmatize ourselves all the time, looking around, comparing, and finding ourselves... I don't know, maybe you are comparing and feeling like you're better than everybody else, but it doesn't usually go in that direction. So all insight practices include paying wholehearted attention. Concentration, samadhi practice is just another dimension. This calm abiding in which the mind gets very still can really be with the subject of attention. And so then it's able to really observe and gain insight into the flowing, changing aliveness, mindfulness and concentration. They work hand in hand. Um, So another kind is cultivating states of deeper absorption. And this capacity can be great, but it's really not for everybody. And that's the tricky part. We really have to be open and experimental and stay with the exploration long enough to know whether it's beneficial or whether it's just generating a lot of striving. You know, striving meaning, you know, trying to create a desired outcome. Winnie gave a great talk on striving last month and it just feeds the patterns in us that may not be our friend, you know, may not be so healthy. So we really want to respect our various neurodiversities here, our different ways of receiving and processing the flow of energy and information in our brains. And this determines how we learn. So for some people it'll be the kanika samadhi, and for others it might be the states we call jhana, which mean um, absorption in meditation where the mind is very drawn in and stable in very steady states, increasingly steady states of stillness. However we're doing, we're taking time to develop the sama samadhi, where we really, whichever kind we're doing, we have to let go of everything except our chosen subject of focus. And we set that intention And we don't have to investigate or get interested in where the mind has wandered when it wanders away, which can be a relief, actually. Uh, We just, as my first teacher used to say, put it all down. You know, we get to drop it if it's a burden and renounce it if it's something that we're used to really uh, attaching to, sticking to, and see if we can renounce it, renouncing the things that actually ultimately are causing us suffering. And don't worry, because even if there's no investigation, no apparent insight in these practices, uh, that high level of sincerity, you won't miss out on insight. It just won't happen so much on a cushion. It can, but more maybe when you get up and walk around. Uh, But there will be insights, for sure. And this is a very selective kind of concentration. There are eight levels in some systems and nine in others and so many different ways of describing the depths and qualities and um, Achan Tanisaro refers to the jhana wars in terms of the differences of definition and description and method and technique and so forth and so on. And the Buddha said that trying to gauge the depth of your jhana practice is one of the four imponderables, the things that will drive you crazy if you think about them. So don't. (laughs) Um, But they can be states of really a lot of joy and ease and pleasure and deep rest and 
restoration, a kind of, I experience this a kind of healing of the whole nervous system. Um, and there can be a profound happiness that actually surpasses what even delightful sense pleasures usually have to offer. And that too helps change our relationship to craving. Um, we really see, uh, like with the Google search engine, we really see we, that it's within, the search within class, you know, that Mark was mentioning. The instructions for jhana are very sequential. They're actually simple, um, depending on what kind of mind you have and the life situations that you may be finding yourself in. Another kind of samadhi is... Um, just the samadhi of resting with that which is pleasant. And because, again, the proximate cause for samadhi is feeling safe, contented, um, and so forth. This is the kind of pleasure we don't have to guard the senses against or feel you know, worried about. Um, and this is why, for example, I gave you the instructions, see if you can find you know, maybe that smooth place in the breath or that place in the body where there are pleasant sensations or at least the absence of painful ones. And, and oh my gosh, the first decades of my practice, I was never given the instruction that it was okay to focus on something pleasant. That would have felt, I don't know, just kind of sinful or unmindful because actually maybe it's, trying to change reality. But, you know, we can. We can, and we do. And uh, learning how to do this is something that the Buddha, it's, it began his awakening when he renounced the ascetic practices for the comfort of nourishment and found, you know, seeing really no harm in uh, delighting in a sense of safety and trust and ease, trusting his experience that uh, kind of carefree animal presence. So Sama Samadhi is unifying, integrating, healthy. It's knowing what to give attention to and what not to. And it's really alluding to the mind that knows how to sustain attention and stay with experience. My dentist, who is named Dr. Chin, um, he's Chinese, so it's not what it sounds like, but it is a funny name for a dentist. Um, He loves his work. He becomes completely absorbed in the doing of it. He makes all his own crowns and bridges and um, he shapes and colors them in his own lab right on the premises. His wife is a receptionist and they seem to like each other a lot. It's just he likes his work and he sings. Sometimes he has this sort of background music and he just hums along. And Other times he just does it on his own. And, and then occasionally he'll look up from my mouth And he'll say, you know why I love this work? It's an art and a science. It's an art and a science. He repeats it twice. Uh, Very happily, you know, it's an art and a science. So here is the same thing, you know, I mean, not... um, Well, sometimes I have a friend, I call him the Dharma dentist because he drills into whatever uh, soft, maybe unhealthy spots there might be in your psyche. Anyway, um, (laughs) the art is how we cultivate the awakening factors and bring them into the practice that we're doing, whichever practice we're doing. The craft or the science is the method, the technique of meditation that we're training in. And just like Dr. Chin says, samasamadhi is both an art and a science. It's certainly an art and a craft. Uh, the other day before I came here, um, 
I was at the dentist having my teeth cleaned and a filling fell out. And I was so happy that it fell out right there instead of here at Spirit Rock. And uh, I was just kind of delighted that it happened there. But I had to go teach afterwards. And I didn't want to mouth, you know, that feeling of just being your mouth full of cotton, like have this big fat lip or something. It doesn't look like that, but it feels like that. And I didn't want to have a big fat cotton lip to talk with. So I asked him not to use so much uh, numbing stuff, Novocaine. Now, of course, you don't have to go outside of the retreat and think about the dentist um, to experience the way pain concentrates the mind, but knowing how to concentrate does make the pain bearable. It wasn't awful, but it's totally bearable. And there are times in our practice, this is another kind of samadhi, where we can get captivated by suffering, either our personal pain or the in the body or some past uh, trauma, either a small T or a capital T trauma, or the pain of the world. And we feel the dukkha of the oceans of suffering Jack was talking about last night in his compassion talk. And we can just kind of flip into this space like a, I don't know, a bandwidth or a frequency of just every kind of suffering, like a frequency of despair. And with some mindfulness, we can just really let it open out and have the courage to be present with this too, to sit up straight in the midst of this experience too. This is a poem from Marie Howe. She says, and and I just will say before I read it, to help you understand it, that um, her brother died of AIDS before the medicines that could save the lives of people with HIV. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he would say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. from a wonderful Zen teacher who died recently, uh, Dido. He's talking about this dark night of the soul, this suffering uh, realm. And in Zen, it's sometimes called the cave, very poetic, you know, the cave of the blue dragon, the place where we are lost and confused. And in practice, we have uh, this courage and willingness to Uh, go down into that cave. It's like the dying side of life, the hardest part of the path. And we just want to keep being born, so joyful. Um, And he says, the cave of the blue dragon is ominous. Only the fearless dare to enter. It's here that the forest of patterns is clearly revealed. It's here that the one ripe pearl is hidden. One of the great resources and anything that is a resource, then it becomes that bright pearl, you know, the hindrances, we surround them with awareness. It's like that grain of sand and, you know, they become something more uh, luminous for us that light our way. And one of the great foundations, the places to develop this samasamadhi is right in your own body. Just as it's a place for compassion, as Jack was saying last night. And I think the more it can be a place for compassion, the more we can bear to 
have it also be a place for sama samadhi, where we can feel our body from inside uh, and feel its support, no matter how much uh, pain or difficulty might be there. So I think I will uh, close this talk, uh, which is missing a page. You know, it's so good because this is plenty. I don't know about you, I can't really focus after 45 minutes anyway. That's a long time. I don't mean uh, to have any focus. I mean to focus on um, listening to a talk. (laughs) Including my own, you know, not just you guys, including my own. So this is plenty. And I I do want to just close with another a Zen koan. I think just looking out and seeing Meg and Diane, I just see these Zen practitioners and it's just very evocative for me. There are more, of course, many of you. And I tend to get to meet with those of you. Um, I can't name you all because I also can't see you all But right this minute. But I tend to get to meet with you. And, and so I've been remembering um, teachings that I really love. And this is a koan. Uh, a monk asks Zen master Unmun, Yunmen in Chinese, and his story is really interesting, but another time. Uh, well, I just will tell you really quickly. He got enlightened, the story goes, when he was leaving his meeting with his teacher, right? Something you all do every other day. And as he was leaving the meeting, the teacher, it was this big, heavy, iron, some sort of ancient medieval temple door. The teacher slammed it on his leg. He didn't get his leg out in time. He didn't see it coming. A Zen mind lapse. He was a moment of no mindfulness. And in, he got his leg broken. And in that moment, he got enlightened. Anyway, that's the story about Unman. <laughs> and aren't you glad we don't use those methods on you? Um, just to test your mindfulness, your kanika samadhi. Um, and the monk asks his teacher, and that's all of us asking our teachers in the morning, raising our hand, finding the courage to ask a question in the hall. And he's saying, um, how is it when the branches are bare, when all the leaves have fallen, and the branches are bare. And the teacher answers, body exposed to the golden wind. There are many ways to understand this teaching, but for the Sama Samadhi talk, I like to understand it as tonight, as how is it for us when all those concepts we have about everything have dropped away? and the branches are just very clean and bare. You know, it's a very vulnerable, open condition. And we can feel actually quite exposed and run for cover in our concepts and thinking and, yeah, you know, we do this. And so if we can just sort of make a practice vow together to see if we can bear it, you know, that openness, that vulnerability, being exposed. Maybe just one second longer, all of us together, we know we're going to do this, and then find out, you know, then what is the golden wind, that breath. You know, it really can transform for us. So this is what I wanted to share with you tonight. And our way, really, of saying sadhu, 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 is by saying, you know, let's just sit for a few minutes. That's our way of bearing witness and just appreciating the teachings and appreciating your attention to them. So thank you. Let's sit together for a few minutes.
you see the pages can be out of order. We can even lose the last page. And it doesn't have to be a distraction or a hindrance. We can just trust that what is here is enough. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.